Patreon.com slash the walk-off podcast. Uh, $4 a month gets you in there. Baseball, Blue Jays, and more baseball. It's the walk-off with Scott Belford and Adam Mack. This ball is crushed. The diehard podcast for the casual fan. And another one. My goodness. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by today's guest, the president of the Toronto Blue Jays. It feels weird just to say that on this little podcast, <laughs> but Mark Shapiro, welcome to the walk-off. Feels weird to hear that, even after uh, even after eight years. <laughs> <laughs> well, to start with, Mark, we're very excited to chat some baseball with you. A big congratulations in order to you on the completion of stage one of the renovations, man. It looks really good. I'm excited to see it in person. And I don't know why this is something that's been going through my mind this whole time, but I've gone through renovations before and it's really easy to go from two weeks to three weeks with that hard deadline of April 11th needing to be in there and playing ball. Were you stressing out at all? Uh, I was stressing more considering what next year will be um, just because of the magnitude uh, and the a limited margin for error when you're ripping out the entire lower bowl and have no seats or clubhouses, you know, and I think, uh, you know, the reality that there's going to be some date in the middle of January when you're going to look out at our bowl and there's going to be nothing there. And, you know, April 12th or whatever the opening day is next year for us is going to be kind of coming and we're going to realize, okay, we've got four months and we have no bowl and no clubhouses and, that 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 reality, knowing that we're going to be facing that this year was more stressful for me. Just thinking about last year's was an exceptional project, but pales in comparison and magnitude to this offseason. The answer is your stress is still building. <laughs> yes, it's ongoing stress, but you know, it's I, ongoing I, you know, stress. I always tell people that, uh, you know, I'm 56 years old chronologically, but my internal organs are about 90 because that's the nature. <laughs> This job, if you can't, if stress is not something you can't handle on an ongoing basis, there's, uh, you know, I saw someone who I know last night pulling out. He was grumbling about the game last night. I was like, hey, it's a hard game. And uh, the reality is that, you know, hey, we won three in a row and then we played a, you know, a clunker last night. That's just, that's going to happen. That's the nature of a 162. And if you, you know, you've got to learn to be able to handle that. It's a tough, tough thing when you're competitive and want to win every game, but the best teams still lose 50 games, 55 games, 60 games. Yeah. Yeah. It's how it goes. And I know that uh, since you've come to Toronto, Mark, it's been pretty obvious that you have this collaborative philosophy when it comes to the way you run an organization. And we've been lucky enough to have members of your team on the show, come on the podcast, like Robert Bernardo and Jimmy Van Ostrin of the uh, mental performance department, Dara Harris of the high performance department, brilliant minds, by the way, great team. Um, cool. But they had a very uniform message when it came towards moving towards the common goal of a championship. And I, I'm curious when this philosophy took hold in your career. Like, was there a particular moment in Cleveland where decisions by committee, you know, using the knowledge of your whole team became a priority? Like what inspired this collaborative uh, philosophy? I guess it was just a byproduct of necessity, you know, that in Cleveland, you know, we had to overcome the challenge of recalibrating from what was a 
high level payroll team in the mid nineties, unnaturally with due to some rare conditions that kind of all converged at the same moment in time to being one of the lowest, you know, payroll teams and still didn't want to sacrifice the ability to be competitive and win and be among the best in the game. And at some point, um, I think, reading, learning, being more aware of what bias is, understanding, you know, what informed decision-making is, and then just intuitively recognizing that, um, you know, analysis and research backs it up. There are no great individual decision-makers. There are no great all-knowing, you know, leaders that, you know, the best leaders are capable of you know, pulling intellect, pulling talent, pulling, pulling experiences, you know, and bringing those together and then putting them into a framework that allows you to be efficient and make good decisions. So um, I just think the collective experiences of a group, the collective perspectives and uh, intelligence of a group are going to beat any individual, you know, over a prolonged you know, window of competitiveness. And so um, that's really it. I was just looking to be better, looking to be more competitive and looking to take advantage of exceptional people because I think we took great pride in hiring great people. So when it comes to committing to a rebuild, it's obviously one of the most difficult decisions to make in pro sports. You became the general manager in Cleveland in 2001 and, and you and your team built a couple of, of, of winning teams there and then came to Toronto in 2015 and by 2017 kind of staring into the eyes of a rebuild retool here for the blue Jays. Uh, You've been through the process a few times now, Mark, what's the most difficult part of a rebuild and how do you as an organization get to the point where you're looking at it and you're like, this is going to suck, but this is probably the right direction yeah. to go. I mean, it, I think the most difficult piece of it is, you know, you don't enter into it lightly. You do it grudgingly because you, you, you know, <laughs> no, no one, no one is in this game to, you know, to not win. I mean, you're, if you're in this game for any other reason, then you're in for the wrong reasons knowing that you're disappointing fans, kids, adults, uh, knowing that you're disappointing the players, you know, on your team and, you know, the other people that work in the front office. So you're really, you know, every one of your constituencies are going to be giving you, I call it that blank stare phase. When you, you know, when you have a plan and everyone kind of gives you that blank stare, like they have no idea what you're saying or what language you're speaking, um, but you recognize it's the only way back to, you know, sustainable competitiveness. And um, I think what prompts you to get to that point is when you objectively recognize that you just don't have, you know, the, the competitive pieces in place to say that we have an objective, you know, ability to leave spring training as a contender. And when you get to that point, um, when the number of ifs outnumber, you know, the number of kind of concrete realities, and you're starting to dream about it rather than say, you know, we feel good about it. Um, you need to start to look at alternatives. And I think playing it out till the very end, uh, grudgingly entering into it can prolong it, obviously. And we listen, we did it, you know, here because we felt like it was such a special juncture in 15 and 16 and it had been so long. 
that we owed it to the fan base that as long as we felt that there was any chance possibly of being a contending team, even if it would have taken some exceptional things all coming together, that we we clung to those hopes until it just got to the point where like, okay, now is the time. And then once you enter into that, Scott, you enter in decisively. You know, that every decision you make until you start to see the other side of it needs to be focused on with that purpose of we are building something and we are building something special. Um, and when the time is right, we're going to go out and sign the free agent players and compliment the young players we have in place. Well, it has been an exciting time because I think, I think the, uh, the blank stare phase is, is, is well over. <laughs> yes. right? And it's been an exciting time to be a Toronto Blue Jays fan as the president, as the guy at the helm here, when you look at this organization right now in 2023, how are you feeling about it? Because you you put a lot of work to get to this moment. They're a very competitive team. How do you generally feel about where everything's at? I feel, you know, really good about quite a bit. I mean, I feel incredibly good about the infrastructure we built in Dunedin, that that is going to be a competitive advantage for us for a long period of time that enables us to develop players more effectively. It enables us to train players in the off season, you know, and attract the players uh, to come and train there that it supports staff in ways that we couldn't have done it before. Um, I feel like we are transitioning this stadium to a ballpark and that will have best in class player facilities that match Florida as well as best in class facilities for all types of fans here. Um, and I feel like from a talent perspective, we are among the best three or four organizations in all of baseball right now at the major league level. So a lot of really good things are in place. We still need to continue to get better to be able to sustain that level of success, which means we need to continue to develop, uh, draft, you know, sign internationally even better than we have. Um, that's going to be crucial to us sustaining, you know, a championship level of play. Uh, but other than winning a world championship, a lot of the major challenges, a lot of the major projects that we undertook seven and a half years ago, I think are, are in place and done. And now we just have to continue to focus on, continu on, on continual improvement, on getting better, looking for opportunities to continually improve, um, learning, growing, challenging each other to, to elevate our game. I can imagine coming in and having a plan to upgrade the facility in Florida and then watching how that has played out must be a real win for you. Cause I know we've talked to, to dozens of guys within the organization. And I know even Adam Klofenstein at a point sent us a video where he was just like, guys, I think I'm lost in the facility. This was a few years <laughs> back when he first got in, but it's an incredible facility. And I know you probably get nothing but compliments on it from all of the players, this has got to feel like a pretty big win. It feels, it's a, it's inspiring to walk around it and see it get used the way we, you know, envision. Just like I, I walked, I don't usually walk the stadium during a game. I'm usually watching the game, but on Saturday, I walk the outfield district here during the game and to see the rooftop bar, to see park social, to see the catch bar, to see Rogers landing, um, these spaces around the bullpens being used the exact same way we envisioned them being used two, three years ago was powerful. It was, it was, you know, it was moving to some extent. I feel the same way when I'm walking through the hitting lab and the pitching lab or the weight room or some of the recovery spaces 
um, or some of the, you know, mental performance or sports science spaces at PDC and Dunedin, it's the exact same feeling, like a lot of thought, a lot of planning, a lot of preparation and collaboration went into the design of this. It wasn't just one person sitting in a room. It wasn't just listening to a designer or an architect. It was subject matter experts all saying, how can we think about design differently? How can we drive culture and drive performance with facilities? Um, and same thing, how do we elevate fan experience, you know, with these unique spaces we're creating here? So I enjoy that. It's not something that was the, you know, is kind of the base of my career for 17 years. All I did was think about players. Um, so to add that in and, and to have been able to kind of recreate a second phase of my career in addition to the player side has been fun for me. I really, I do actually love thinking about the convergence of those two things, um, of performance and of, you know, design and architecture. And so, yeah, it's been, that's been really gratifying for me. So with the, Fan experience relative to the opponent's bullpen. Uh, <laughs> I know this has been kind of a a topic that has come up with fans getting aggressively while still respectfully uh, in the faces of the opponent's teams. Yeah. What I'm taking away from what you're saying is that that's not an oversight. That's it was intentionally designed in such a way. Am I getting that? <laughs> yeah, correctly? I mean, it was designed. It was designed more to allow our our players to connect, our fans to connect with our players, and to feel more connected to the field, and to provide the spaces underneath that you don't see as much. You can obviously see. We showed the media, um, <clears throat> you know, what those areas are, um, but to provide a you know diversity of experience and kind of a more modern experience. The the reality of that also could result in some heckling you know, of the visiting team, you know, one reporter has made a bigger deal out of that than everybody else. It really hasn't been a big deal. Um, our, you know, our fans have been made it clear they're Toronto Blue Jay fans to the visiting bullpen. Weird. But they've done it, yeah. but they've done, <laughs> they've done it respectfully and they've done it, you know, and I think we are, we have trained staff around those spaces to be very proactive that if they see something that starts to look like it's elevating across the line. That wouldn't be something we would be proud of as a city or a country or an organization <clears throat> that they step in and kind of remind those fans there's a line. Right. But as of yet, that line hasn't been crossed. I think that, uh, we're, you know, I know this broadcast, this podcast will be seen at very different times as we're recording it. We're playing the Yankees. So I think if there's ever an issue, we'll see it this week. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully no so, issues. I know you, Mark, you've probably been asked this a million times, and this was one of the questions that so many folks who were listening wanted to know from you. And so uh, here it comes and apologies if you've heard it a million times. As long as it's not money ball, I'm okay. <laughs> well, how do you like your portrayal in Moneyball? Is oh. literally the question. <laughs> Good gosh. It's not, it's not factual. I, I kind of, dismissed it when they asked me to approve the script because it was just so fictional and so fabricated. It didn't, I wasn't GM. I was assistant GM. Billy V never snuck into my office and poached Paul D. Podesta from us. I recommended, <laughs> I recommended Paul to him. And by the way, Paul was replaced by Chris Antonetti, who's, you know, one of the finest executives in all of MLB. So we did okay. Even losing Paul, um, who's a bright and talented guy also. So, um, yeah, that I mean, is hilarious. You're like, please yeah. don't let it be Moneyball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like one of those things. Like, 
goodness gracious, I hope my career has meant more than that. But uh, <laughs> listen, I get, you know, it's been, what, 20 years since that movie came out. I, I get asked the question. I think it, the best answer I can give you is uh, Michael Okafor was the, the subject of The Blind Side, which is also a book that Michael, that Michael Lewis wrote, wrote his own book after the movie came out. And he got asked in an interview, why did he write a book when there had been a book and a movie? And he said, because you know, the, uh, the book was fiction and the movie was fantasy. Blind sides, you know, so I think, you know, Moneyball, like that's not an accurate depiction of the Rincon trade. It's not an accurate depiction of how Paul DePodesta left. It's entertaining and it makes Billy Bean, you know, look like a, you know, a more interesting and compelling character, which is, which is what great, and he's a great writer, which is what great writers do. They kind of tell the story around one character. Uh, But to paint Cleveland as a large market team is humorous. (laughs) Is is humorous. And of itself, so you should, you can get a little little window into that. <laughs> so, Mark, improving the outfield defense was obviously a priority in the off season, and I think that it's safe to say that it has been a success. Obviously, the organization liked what they saw in Varsho and Kiermaier before acquiring them, but you know you wouldn't have pursued them otherwise. But now that they're here and within the fold. What are some of the intangibles that each of these guys brings to the table that that maybe you weren't aware of? That might be the wrong word, but weren't as sure on until they wore a Jays uniform for a few months. Yeah, I, I mean that's a great question. But the way they look at their their defensive ability as a craft, you know, they they don't just they're not just good because they're physically gifted. They're good because their work routines and their pregame preparation are elite, and the way they go about preparing every single night, um, all spring training uh, for playing outfield and for playing defense is, you know, obsessive and really impressive and has elevated, you know, the rest of our players' attention to detail as well. So um, they're, they're, those two guys are, you know, very different, very different ages and spectrums of their career, but they're both great teammates. They're both intense competitors. They both take a ton of pride. Uh, in their outfield defense and their ability to impact the game, both on the base paths and with their defense, which were two areas we were looking to improve and areas we felt were opportunities to improve. You don't need to get into the the weeds of the details here, but I am curious with the Varsho trade, how a trade of that magnitude goes down. How long is the process? Uh, once you start to get closer to it being a deal, what is the feeling around the organization on a trade like that? I think the you know the inception of that trade was recognizing that, you know, we wanted to get a little more balanced, left-handed defense oriented in the outfield. So we targeted left-handed hitting outfielders throughout all of baseball with some control. (laughs) We knew that our area of surplus was probably catching and that we were probably going to have to deal from catching. We didn't have one person earmarked. It would be, we'd have to move where people wanted, you know, the the player that people wanted. Um, And it became pretty quick clear that Arizona was the place where we had a fit. You know, we happen to have a longstanding relationship. Mike Hazen started his career in the, in the Indian front office as an assistant uh, in baseball operations, then assistant farm director there um, played at Princeton and was a guy that kind of was on my radar when I was GM in Cleveland. So, you know, we Ross and I both have a longstanding relationship with Mike. Um, and then it was just a collaborative effort 
right? It's working through players. It's kind of working down a list. It's looking at different combinations of trades. It's always examining alternatives, the number of people that contributed to that. I always take great pride. If you were to walk into the room when we were having those trade conversations, you would not have been able to tell Ross Atkins from a junior analyst because he's not, you know, bludgeoning the room. He's not talking. He's listening. Uh, our systems are meant up, meant to encourage safety and comfort and for people to express their opinions. That's why a lot of what we do is in polling instead of verbally and vocally. Um, we are, we have young people analytically looking at swings and, you know, analysts, we have people, traditional baseball scouts, you know, projecting tools. And we have people thinking about makeup and character and teammate and, you know, personal personality and fit on our team as well. So we're looking at all the variables that exist and all the combinations. And, um, you know, we, we ultimately, you know, started to hone in on Varsho as being the player that we wanted. Uh, and we, we had to add the player, you know, that we liked in Guriel to get him. We couldn't get him alone with the one player alone. So, but I think that trade has a chance to be one of the, one of what you actually, you know, people might not understand, which is you want trades to be win-win trades. And I say that mm. because we only have 29 potential trade partners in the world, right? So if you start to beat people in trades and alienate them and you start to narrow down the teams that will trade with you, <clears throat> what you'd like is each trade to work out as a win-win. So you have the basis to make the next trade. They don't always work out that way. And I think not every team goes into it thinking that way, but we, we weren't like trying to hide anything and like trade Moreno because we didn't think he'd be a good player. We knew mm -hmm. he was going to be a good player, you know, but we just needed Varsho. We had a window of contention. It was four years of control with him, which is a lot of control. Mm -hmm. um, and we felt like we could replace Lourdes through free agency. So, you know, it, it's, it wasn't, it's not easy. It's tough. And, it, you know, again, it wasn't that we were trying to like win that trade. We were trying to have a win-win. Now you, you touched on the, uh, valuations of like, the, the catcher situation was such a, a wealth of riches last, last off season and coming into this off season, whichever of the three we did move on from ultimately it was Moreno. We were going to feel like we lost someone good, but we were also going to feel happy that the two guys we have left, whoever they might be, are phenomenal options, right? Did you ever get a sense, because I'm assuming the Diamondbacks weren't the only team you were negotiating over catchers with. Did you get a sense from different teams, and you don't have to say who ranked who where, but that maybe other front offices valued each of our three catchers? differently than you expected or differently from each other or was there a consensus ranking of the, the three catchers? Yeah, so again, many, you don't have to tell me who yeah, they are but was so many things go into the way teams rank players um and years of years of control factors in um as well as just talent and ability so different teams are weighting different variables differently because they're important different things are important to them depending upon their competitiveness, depending upon their market, because baseball's CBA creates a very different set of operating conditions for every different team. Um, so yes, teams value players differently because of all those reasons, as well as individual philosophies. So Kevin Kiermeyer, and I know this is, I, listen, I didn't like him. This is a interdivisional bias. I'm aware of it. 
but I love him now. He has done nothing but impress <laughs> me this season. He's healthy. He's hitting. He's robbing home runs in, uh, in center field. And I know I'm not alone on this, Mark. There's a lot of the fan base that have fallen in love with him. And I know it's probably too early to talk next season or extending the guy. And even if you were in talks with him, it would be bad negotiation to even bring it up. And this isn't necessarily a Kiermaier specific question, but I am wondering the process of recognizing a player that maybe you would like to extend or negotiate with. How do those talks start? Like, is there an organizational roadmap for this or is it very individual player to player scenario to scenario? Very individual. Um, some guys don't want to talk about contracts at all during the season. Some guys don't care about that. They can compartmentalize it. It's absolutely fine. Um, so I think the only thing I'd say is you probably at some point, if you feel like you would like to have a contractual conversation during the season, you probably broach that with the player's agent, um, talk to the player directly and see how he feels about that. You'll get a quick indication as to whether it's something he wants to engage on or something or he wants to wait on. How's Kevin Kiermeyer feel about it? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Mark, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, we'll get in trouble from our listeners if we don't toss it over to Adam here and get some listener questions, but we really do appreciate you being so generous. Yeah, it's your, my uh, pleasure. It's time. great to be with you. I did have a handful of my own questions, but I got to say the listener questions that we've gotten are much smarter than the ones I could have come up with. So <laughs> we'll just get to these. Uh, first one comes in from Hey Kami says, would the Blue Jays be serious suitors for Shohei Otani? We often hear bozos online say that with the international stardom, the sponsorships, the direct impact he has on ticket sales, jersey sales, etc., that Shohei Otani generates a billion dollars a year for baseball and the LA Angels. Is that even close to true? And how much total uh, revenue could a franchise directly attribute to having Shohei Otani on their team? I mean, those are great questions. I think that's there's no way that's true. Uh, you know, so <laughs> that's I think that Scott Boris would probably want you to believe that's true. Um, no, I mean, he is clearly a guy that, you know, um, could contribute a lot mostly to wins, you know, and which definitely impacts revenue as far as endorsements go. Um, you know, I mean, you're talking probably the single millions, but not, you know, that's a long way from a billion, you know, so a lot of the endorsement money goes to him, you know, he, I think has, I think he gets, he gets the most in major league baseball. So, um, yeah, I mean, players like that, you can't talk about players like that while they're with another team, as far as our interest level goes, right. but he's, he's, um, such a compelling player, you know, for anyone that loves the game, just because, what he's what he's doing and has done is inconceivable. It's not something that if you had told me 20 years ago that I would have ever believed is possible. Mm -hmm. Do you think we Same. see more <laughs> two way players coming up now or is this just that exceptional? I mean, I, they, they exist, right? They exist in college baseball in the U.S. And there have been other guys that have tried to do it after exceptional college careers and been unable to do it. So I think he is, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that he's that he's going to be that anyone can replicate that. I think he's a unicorn. Fair enough. All right. Next one comes in from Michelle says, uh, Hey Mark, love to see the blue Jays are in such good hands with you and Ross. Very exciting time to be a Canadian baseball fan. My question is this, uh, and you don't have to give details on your secret sauce when it comes to evaluating players and making personnel decisions, but can you acknowledge 
that the Blue Jays at least have a secret sauce, a system <laughs> or a table of data, an algorithm, something, uh, but something more than just what's publicly available to civilians like myself through websites like Fangraphs and Baseball Savant. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is no, a secret sauce. Uh, no, there's no secret sauce. Chapiro's no, secret sauce. All right, like there's it. no single algorithm, but yes, we, there's there's definitely more being done than what's available in, in the public domain. Um, I think a lot of the the art to decision making is on how you weight the information you have. So I'd say the two things that aren't available in public domain is that we have some proprietary analytics. So we're doing some analytics to either look for inefficiencies in the marketplace to value players, to value certain tools or aspects or um, to measure, you know, attributes of players that may be differently than, than is being done in a public domain. Two, it's the way we can combine and wait and look at historical, you know, look at weight, weight look at information in the context of history, the context of the history of players, in other words, model-based decision-making. Um, and then C, it's not, it's not a special sauce because it's constantly evolving and we're constantly reevaluating and constantly looking to be better, you know, based on our past decisions, good and bad. Very good. Okay. Two more. We'll try and get to these as quick as we can to sneak them in here. Wyatt says, Hey Mark, so cool. You're on the walk-off. How long do you expect before MLB expands to 32 teams? I just had this conversation yesterday. Um, only personal opinion, not, not any kind of, and while I am in those meetings, it's, it's not been something we've discussed, which kind of gives you my, the reason for my personal opinion that I think that until Tampa is addressed. Now Oakland is close to being addressed and any other distressed market is kind of under a good situation. Um, and that's one. And two is maybe not until we come up with a better mechanism for sharing revenue and creating competitive, more competitive balance. Cause I think that's an obstacle. Um, but I'm not certain of that. That's just, I think that's a variable that exists within the equation of kind of thinking about some of the more challenged markets right now, you know, that are out do you, there. Do you see a salary floor being implemented at any point? Or is that something you can't speak on either? I, I can't, you know, again, it's hard to, hard to see a cap without a floor, but you know, I think those are going to all be tough conversations with the union. And sure. I, what I'd look, what I, what I ultimately, you know, and what I'm comfortable saying publicly is I think what's most important is that, you know, just like we did with the pitch clock and the rule changes that I think have been the most important changes that we made in the games in my game and the on-field game in my 31 years uh, for growing the fan base. Um, we need to figure out a way, and this is on us as a, as a Major League Baseball entity, to help the players feel like they are not just thinking myopically about the moment. Uh, but they are stakeholders in the future of the game, that they care about the long-term game, that they are, uh, they feel like they're owners and not employees. Mm -hmm. And so until we do that, it's going to be hard to do anything. Um, but we, we need to do that. Fair enough. Do you have time for one more? I know we're pushing sure. you for time. All right. Sure. So Sabrina says, I hope this gets to Mark. Uh, with the implementation of Pitchcom, we're starting to see some pitchers calling their own game. Uh, Adam has been saying since day one, this will inevitably lead to some nerd in the analytics department being the one <laughs> to call each pitch. So Sabrina wants to know how far off is Adam with this idea? 
Uh, I hate this idea, but it also makes sense. Uh, do you think one day we'll see pitches being called by the analytics department? And is there any rule currently that would explicitly prevent that from happening right now? Thanks for reading this, Sabrina. I think that the the misperception behind Sabrina's question is that what's actually happening is there's a morphing, you know, of front office and coaching staff so that we've got guys. If you looked on our bench, Adam Udelman is probably the closest person sitting next to John Schneider and Pete Walker. Um, Udes went to Wake Forest. He was a finance major and never played baseball. You know, he's, he was an analyst initially, and now he's helping think about player deployment. He's not making the decisions, but he's contributing to the decision-making because he has the information He's kind of that translator of the of the analyst's work to the field staff and the players. Um, Chris Bassett is not going to let someone else call his game, but he's smart enough to factor in all the information out there. So uh, what, that's what I would say is that, you know, we have information. Um, we like to think it's like, you know, when you get in your car and you're backing up, do you refuse to use the camera that's the rearview mirror? <laughs> no, you use that because it's information and it's available to you. That wasn't available to you 20 years ago. So you didn't consider using it. We have a lot more information now uh, that when balanced appropriately with experience and when thoughtfully used in a way that it doesn't detract from executing and competing on the field can help you win. So that's what we're trying to do. Awesome. Great answer, Mark. Thank you so very much for your time. We really, really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Walk-Off Podcast with Scott Belford and Adam Mack with a new episode every Friday. Thanks for listening.